As a non-lawyer, it would appear to me you have got a hell of a case. Yeah, and I'm telling you, we don't. And I hope people will take the time to understand why. Oh, I don't think they will. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on 91.7 FM KYAQ and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe. On the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure. Coming up, an investigation that actually concerns the health, safety, lives, and well-being of hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of Americans. An investigation that is largely ignored entirely by the U.S. Congress, even as the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server played out once again today in the U.S. House just one day after the Department of Justice decided not to prosecute Hillary Clinton and two days after the FBI determined there was nothing that rose to the level of criminal intent according to their year-long investigation. And thus they also had determined that there should be no criminal charges brought against the presumptive Democratic nominee. More on that in a moment. Also joining us a little bit later will be Desi Doyen. Hi, Desi. Hey. And our latest Green News report. Uh, Catching up, we we took some time off uh, due to the 4th of July holiday. And that holiday, for many in Florida, was ruined. Yes, it was gross. By you. And dangerous. You, and speak- yes, it's all my fault. All your fault. Uh, yeah, so no, it was, it was something that ruined the holiday in, in Florida for many people. It has to do with climate change once again. And it seems like Florida, you know, is really getting the brunt of a lot of this. Uh, sea level rise and now... And now this. We won't give it away. We'll, we'll wait. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a teaser. So that'll be in our Green News report, along with a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, including the uh, U.S. Senate trying to block GMO labeling laws. Uh, so all of that and much more straight ahead. But uh, a big story today, longtime Republican James Comey, the FBI director, 
responded to several hours of questioning. I think it was at least four hours. We watched uh, most of it, Des. It was four hours or more. Oh, at least. I think it was more like five, but who knows? And it was really interesting. Uh, Questioning from the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee in an emergency hearing declared by the Republican chair, Congressman Jason Chaffetz of Utah, This all in response to the FBI's decision to not recommend criminal prosecution against the presumptive Democratic nominee uh, in regard to her use of a private email server while she was serving as Secretary of State. Now, uh, Jim Comey, James Comey, is a Republican. He served under George uh, W. Bush in in the uh, Justice Department there at the time. He worked on the Whitewater investigation of Hillary Clinton back in the 1990s. He was trying to uh, investigate and perhaps prosecute Hillary Clinton. He was a hero to Republicans and he was a hero to some progressives when in a dramatic story. Remember this during the Bush years, Des? A dramatic story concerning George W. Bush's then Attorney General John Ashcroft, who was deathly ill in a hospital room. Uh, Comey uh, stood up to block what he felt at the time, at least reportedly, because this was all cloaked in secrecy way back when. But Comey uh, stood up in this midnight, uh, very dramatic event to block what he felt was a grave violation of the Constitution concerning mass spying on Americans at the time, at the time that the attorney general was was out sick, was deathly ill. There was a big uh, standoff between uh, him and some other DOJ officials and the White House itself. Um, So he has been respected, Comey has, by both Democrats for that and Republicans uh, for other stuff, uh, by Dems and Republicans alike, back when he was nominated by President Obama to be the FBI director. Now, nonetheless, at the time, we had on this show a couple of years ago when this was all going on, the the nomination for Comey, we had FBI Special Agent Colleen Rowley on this show. She, a Time Magazine Person of the Year for her post-9-11 whistleblowing on FBI failures in the lead-up to uh, 9-11, she was on here to discuss her concerns about Comey and issues that she felt that Congress uh, needed to press Comey on before his nomination um, as FBI chief was confirmed. But, of course, the Congress didn't. Republicans and Democrats alike said, we love James Comey, let's let him in, everything's fine. Among the concerns, by the way, I went back and looked at it at the time, was was uh, ACLU's uh, Laura Murphy had described um, Comey as uh, having approved or defended some of the worst abuses of the Bush administration during his time uh, when he was deputy attorney general, uh, including torture, warrantless wiretapping uh, and indefinite detention. So a lot of credibility, both among Republicans and Democrats for this guy. But as ever, we try to remain skeptical of all government officials because I kind of think that's my job. And frankly, that's the job of the public in, in general. You know, you can like these people, but I see no reason to trust any government official ever. Um, in any event, it is with that in mind that we looked at the uh, the testimony today in which Comey said once again over and over that there was no evidence of willful intent to violate any laws by Hillary Clinton. He uh, clarified uh, 
uh, he clar- the remarks about the emails, and this was the most interesting and important to me because I think this is going to come up over and over and again. This is going to be one of those Benghazi things, one of those acorn things, one of those whitewater things that Republicans are just going to keep putting out there, keep misreporting. Here's what we know of the tens of thousands of emails that Hillary Clinton uh, uh, wrote or received on her own private server. Just three of them, just three of them were found to have any kind of actual markings on them concerning their classifications. Any kind of classified uh, markings that somebody might have looked at. Now, Hillary Clinton has said none of the uh, email that she sent or received was uh, was 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 classified, was marked specifically marked as classified, and none. Uh, in fact, Comey seemed to confirm today, if I understood this, none were marked that way. In fact, in, in their header that you might look at to see, oh, this is classified, this is uh, top secret. Um, and so forth, uh, confidential, whatever it is. None of them were marked that way in their header. Three, however, were uh, did have a marking on them concerning their classification levels. Three had a, a parentheses, then a capital C, and then a parentheses at some point down in the body of the email before some part of the text in the email. That C marking, Comey explained, means uh, confidential. Or, in other words, the lowest level of classification for this type of material. Uh, secret and top secret, that's uh, more classified. This is the lowest level. Confidential, and in this case, you had only three documents out of all the tens of thousands that they, were, that they looked at, that they were able to look at. Just three were marked as, in any way, marked as classified. In this case, way down in the body. Now, uh... The State Department, as I understand, has now since said that at least two of those three instances were incorrectly marked as confidential, that they were not, in fact, a, a confidential material. So that's what we're talking about. Either three or one, really, uh, emails that were marked in some fashion as uh, as as classified. Hillary Clinton has said none of them were marked as classified, but out of tens of thousands, apparently three of them were, two of them incorrectly. That seems to be what we know. That seems to be the facts. That seems to be the reality, at least as uh, we hear it from James Comey and at least as we heard it from Hillary Clinton. In any event, Comey reiterated again that no reasonable uh, prosecutor would have brought an indictment in this case. He said you know, several times that after the agency's uh, three and a half hour interview with Secretary Clinton, he's no longer sure that she actually understood uh, what was going on with her server, where these emails were were actually being kept, how it worked, what their uh, vulnerability was. Uh, and again, over and over, he said that an indictment in this case uh, would not be supported, that it, any other prosecutor simply would not have brought a, uh, a prosecution for a case such as this. He noted, by the way, that it was unanimous. It was a unanimous decision among every person on the investigative team of prosecutors and legal analysts and so forth. They all thought that this did not rise to the level of prosecution. 
Uh, he said that uh, the investigation involved three years of work jammed into 12 months. And they you know, really uh, brought everything they had to bear to this, to pull together the emails that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, had deleted at various points throughout her work that were not turned over to the State Department. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But in any event, he felt it would be unfair to bring a prosecution in this case because it would have only been brought due to her celebrity status. That in contradiction to uh, you know many critics who have said she got off the hook because of her celebrity status. In any event, Comey says no, she would have only been prosecuted because of her celebrity status. He reiterated over and again that Clinton was extremely careless in her handling of these matters but that it simply didn't rise to the level of criminal intent. And as he said during his press conference announcement on Tuesday, that looking uh, at the case history in this country for similar cases like this, he said there are simply no federal criminal cases that were brought uh, in an instance similar to this. Congressman John Duncan of Tennessee um, asked him about some of these points. There was a lot of great testimony today, but let me just play you a little bit here from uh, John Duncan. Uh, who specifically asked, is there one standard of justice for the Clintons versus all the regular people out there? Before I came to Congress, I spent several years as a criminal court judge. Try, I tried several, presided over several hundred uh, felony criminal cases. And I can assure you that I saw many cases where the uh, evidence of criminal intent was flimsier than the evidence uh, in this case. But uh, do you do you realize or do you uh, do you realize that great numbers of people across this country uh, uh, felt that you presented such a strong uh, such an incriminating case against secretary clinton in your press conference that they were very surprised or even shocked when you reached the conclusion to let her off do you doubt that great numbers feel that way no i think so and i i understand the questions and i wanted to be as transparent as possible. We went at this very hard to see if we could make a case, and I wanted the American people to see what I honestly believed about the whole thing. Well, do you, uh, do you understand, as the uh, chairman said earlier, that great numbers of people feel now that there's a, a one standard of justice for the Clintons and another for regular people? Yeah, I've heard that a lot. It's not true, but I've heard it a lot. <laughs> well, uh, even the ranking member who was here, who, who uh, of course, uh, as we understand, uh, had to defend uh, Secretary Clinton as strongly as possible, he almost begged you to uh, explain the gap between the incriminating case that you presented and the conclusion that was reached. Did, did that surprise you, that he felt so strongly that there was this big gap? No, not at all. No, these, it's a complicated matter. It involves understanding how the Department of Justice works across decades, how prosecutorial discretion is exercised. I get that folks see disconnection, especially when they see a statute that says gross negligence. Well, the director just said she was extremely careless, so how is that not prosecutable? So it takes an understanding of what's gone on over the last 99 years. What's the precedent? How do we treat these cases? I totally get people's questions, and I think they're in good faith. Do you... Uh, uh we talk about gross negligence here, and you, you said that uh, Secretary Clinton was extremely careless with this classified material and how dangerous it could be, how threatening to uh, even to people's lives that it could be to disclose classified uh, material. 
do you uh, uh, agree that there is a very thin line between gross negligence and extreme carelessness? And would you explain to me what uh, you consider to be that, uh, uh, that difference? Sure, Judge. Uh, Congressman, as a former judge, you know uh, there isn't actually a great definition in the law of gross negligence. Some courts interpret it as close to willful, which means you know you're doing something wrong. Others drop it lower. My term, extremely careless, is trying to be kind of an ordinary person. That's a common sense way of describing it. Sure looks real careless to me. Uh, the question of whether that amounts to gross negligence, frankly, is really not uh, at the center of this, because when I look at the history of the prosecutions and see it's been one case brought on a gross negligence theory, I know from 30 years there's no way anybody at the Department of Justice is bringing a case against John Doe or Hillary Clinton for the second time in 100 years based on those facts. You ended your uh, statement to... Uh uh, Congressman Cooper a while ago saying no, saying once again that no reasonable prosecutor could have brought this case. Yet you also mentioned earlier today that you had seen several of your friends and other prosecutors who've said publicly, many across this country, that they would have been glad to prosecute this case. I smile because they're friends and I haven't talked to them. I want to say, guys, so where were you over the last 40 years? Where were these cases? They just have not been brought for reasons that I said earlier. It's a good thing that the Department of Justice worries about prosecuting people for being careless. I don't like it. As a citizen, I want people to show they knew they were breaking the law, and then we'll put you in jail. That was uh, James Comey, FBI director, responding to Congressman John Duncan during the more than four-hour hearing, emergency hearing, in the uh, House U.S. House Oversight and Government Reform Committee today. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see these facts come out. Uh, I thought he was very impressive, Comey was, that he answered one congressman after another, seemed to be uh, credible, seemed to be honest, did not seem to be flinching from any of these questions, understood why why people would be concerned here. Um, uh, Carolyn Maloney, a congresswoman, uh, and I don't think I have time to play this, but she gave him the opportunity to respond to all of these uh, top Republicans uh, who had previously lauded him and now are turning and attacking him. Guys like Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz, uh, Donald Trump, etc. And he handled them all uh, with ease, it seemed to me. Yeah, I was very impressed with his testimony. I, I really encourage people to go watch as much as you can yeah. of the House hearing because he details very specifically and very clearly and very patiently, painstakingly explains the differences between the previous cases, because I see a lot of folks bringing up, oh, wasn't this guy in the, in the, in the, mm -hmm. in the Navy? He was prosecuted. It's like, that was a different case. And he explains why it was yeah. different and how it was different. And now he was only looking at the issue of the, the private server and the issue of the classification uh, and and so forth, the, the top secret mail and, and was it hacked and did she know and all of that stuff. I, I got to say, I'm more troubled and this was not part of his investigation, uh, at least as he explained it. I'm more troubled by the emails uh, that she and her attorneys alone decided were not business related and thus d deleted them, uh, did not turn them over uh, to the State Department, uh, deleted them in what might have resulted in a violation of the Federal Records Act. She was deciding, or at least her attorneys, <clears throat> oh, these are not uh, business related, so we don't have to turn them over. And unfortunately, we have to take their word for it. Now, Comey said they were able to put together a lot of, you know, to reconstruct a lot of the uh, emails that were on the server that were not uh, turned over. 
But ultimately, we will never know. A lot of these emails were deleted. We will never know if they were business-related, and uh, that could have been a violation of the Federal Records Act. Um, we're you know, asked by Hillary to simply trust her, to trust her and her attorney's judgment. That is not supposed to be the way the government records work. It's not up to her to decide what is business-related and what is not. Um but very little of today's questioning was on that point. Uh, perhaps, and I'm just just guessing here, but maybe it's because almost all of those Congress members themselves also use private email servers, whether they're commercial servers or their own. Uh, but they use private email for much of their own business. Yet, unlike the executive branch, the State Department is an executive branch. Unlike the executive branch, the legislative branch, Congress, has exempted itself from the very same requirement for obtaining records uh, that they are outraged that Clinton violated. Uh, so they are off the hook. They know that they use private email all the time for government business. They know they are holding themselves to a different standard than the than executive they are holding branch. the executive branch. Right. So maybe I don't know. Maybe that's why they didn't spend a lot of time on that. They don't want people looking into their private email. Uh, I think we should. Anyway, we got to take a quick break and uh, we will come back with uh, another investigation that doesn't concern Congress, but maybe it should. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. There's a wonderful world of chemistry Anywhere you wander Yes, there is Thousands of sights of pure delights Stretching from here clear to yonder Yes, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Who says that Congress is so broken that it can't pass anything anymore? In early May, for example... Uh, as the Associated Press reported at the time, President Barack Obama signed into law a resolution that makes the bison the national mammal of the U.S. See? Lawmakers spearheading the effort say the once nearly extinct icon deserves the elevated stature because of its economic and cultural significance in the nation's history. Supporters of the legislation say they believe the recognition will elevate the stature of the bison to that of the bald eagle long the national emblem, and bring greater attention to ongoing recovery efforts of the species. See? See? Congress can pass stuff. They can work together, Republicans and Democrats alike. But in truth, uh, that great bison bill wasn't the only piece of legislation that both chambers, both chambers of the U.S. Congress were able to come together to agree upon recently and then see signed by the president. A few weeks after the great bison accomplishment, the U.S. Congress also passed a more substantive bill that was also signed by the president. All right. The 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act was a landmark piece of public health and environmental legislation mandating the EPA 
the Environmental Protection Agency, to protect the public from, quote, unreasonable risk of injury to health or the environment by regulating the manufacture and sale of chemicals, including substances like PCBs, asbestos, and lead-based paint. That 1976 law was designed to prevent harmful exposure to the public before it happened, instead of waiting until after the substance had been introduced. Now, most Americans, I suspect, assume that toxic chemicals are well regulated in the United States. But here's a little known fact. When the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act was first put into place 40 years ago, all existing chemicals on the market at the time were deemed safe under the law for use and they were grandfathered in. Although there are some 60,000 chemicals now on the market, the EPA has tested only about 200 of them in all of these years. 200 of them? Uh, now we get, okay, to the good-ish news. In another rare instance, very rare these days, uh, of Republicans and Democrats coming together, if only for a brief moment, Beyond the Great Bison Act, in early June of this year, our broken U.S. Congress finally, finally passed the first update to the Toxic Substances Control Act since 1976, giving the EPA greater authority and oversight. Now, the bill has uh, finally been signed by the president, and that's all the good news. But that update... That will have come too late for many folks who have lived near industrial and chemical manufacturing facilities for decades where manufacturers openly dumped toxic waste from their production lines into nearby rivers and streams without informing or protecting their own employees, much less nearby residents who were exposed to these chemicals. One of the biggest toxic offenders going back some 50 years, DuPont Chemical. One of the DuPont Company's better things for better living through chemistry. Yes, better living through better things through chemistry. Yes, DuPont Chemicals, which manufactured something called C8, a chemical which for decades was used to make Teflon for nonstick cookware and other stain and water-resistant products. Well, it turns out C8 is also incredibly toxic and can leach into foods where it accumulates in, in human tissue over time. And it has now been found in the bloodstream of 99% of Americans. In a story that is uh, increasingly familiar, internal corporate documents indicate that DuPont Chemical first learned about the toxic health impacts of its C8 product decades ago. But it didn't inform its employees or residents whose drinking water wells were near DuPont's plant in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where the company dumped the toxic chemicals into the ground and into the Ohio River. DuPont spent millions in court and campaign donations to halt any attempts to expose its liability, and they are now currently facing a slew of lawsuits because of it. Those lawsuits have revealed the extent of just how much DuPont knew about the impacts of C8 and how it tried to cover it all up from their employees and the public. The matter also reveals just how little the federal government does, despite constant unsupported claims by Republicans of over-regulation by an out-of-control EPA. 
the uh, reality of the matter, as usual, seems to be the complete opposite. Here to talk about all of this right now is Farron Cousins. He is a writer reporting on environmental and energy issues from desmogblog.com, and you may know him as the producer, the writer, and the co-host of Ring of Fire on Free Speech TV, along with our old friend, trial lawyer Mike Papantonio. Farron Cousins, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So glad to have you, my friend. Uh, all right, by way of full disclosure, Farron, uh, your Ring of Fire partner, Mike Papantonio, is currently in court on behalf of one of the alleged victims who is uh, suing DuPont over C8. Is that correct? That is correct. This is uh, uh, the second trial in about 12 months that uh, that Pap has done, and, and you know, I, I talk to him every day. Things are are going well, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's it, it's a difficult, a very difficult case when you're facing such a massive uh, uh, corporation that's been mm -hmm. around, you know, for over 100 years. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're fighting the good fight every day, you know, Pap and all of the other attorneys involved in this. And, uh, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what they do and, uh, you know, the courage it takes to go in there and stand up to these giants. Well, and I want to talk about the history a little bit of these giants and how long this uh, toxic dumping by DuPont appears to have been going on and uh, how long they've known about it and withheld the facts from the public and even their own employees. But l let me uh, first ask you, in this case, the current case that you're in now, what is the victim in that specific case uh, that Papantonio is now representing in court? What, what is the victim charging? What is the, what is the injury in this particular case? Well, what's happened with this one, um, like the previous uh, Bartlett case from last September, is, uh, you know, C8 exposure through drinking water um, uh, develops uh, into cancer in the body. Um, and, you know, just to kind of backtrack on that a little bit, one thing you mentioned in your intro, and this is something that people really have to understand about this chemical, the C8, is that it has this, what they call biopersistence. Mm -hmm. It builds up over time and does not get flushed out of the body, and that's what's happening uh, with the plaintiffs in these cases. It's not just, you know, they were exposed for a year or two years. Mm -hmm. It's that the exposure accumulates. You know, you, you get exposed, you know, at this point and this point and this point in the future, and it adds up. It doesn't, uh, you know, get flushed out of the body. We have 99% of Americans with this C8 chemical detectable in their body. Uh, we found instances, polar bears that live hundreds of miles away from any human civilization have traces of C8 in their blood. That is how persistent this chemical is. I mm. mean, it, it, it's, it's global. Mm. It has gone global in humans, in animals, and the environment. And, and so this particular case is focused on uh, uh, one man who developed, um, I, I believe this one is kidney cancer as well, just like the uh, first one. Um, and you know, this is only the third overall case out of about 3,500 oh, that are man. still left to go to trial individually. And, and that first case you mentioned, uh, th that was a woman who developed cancerous tumors on her kidneys. Uh, and, and, and how did that resolve? That resolved in a jury award for her, did it not? It did. Um, the jury came back with a, about $1.6 but they did not award any punitive damages because they found at the time that they did not feel that DuPont uh, was malicious in the poisoning. Mm. But um, as we pointed out on DeSmog blog last week, that argument over malice, uh, that may not stand up 
in in the trial that's going on now and the subsequent uh, trials because we've you know these documents have now been released mm-hmm. as a result of the trial and we're finding out that DuPont knew all the way back to 1961 uh, uh, <laughs> yep. that they classified Teflon as a toxic substance. In February of 1961, they knew that C8 exposure in rats had been linked to enlargement of the testes, the kidneys, adrenal glands. And uh, again, I mean, this is 53 years before they stopped dumping this chemical into the Ohio River, you know, by the uh, uh, barrel full. Yeah. So they knew back then. And so it's getting harder for the company to argue we didn't know because we see the documents, we, we have the memos, we have the uh, uh, studies of their own scientists where they classified this thing as a possible human carcinogen, you know, uh, dating mm-hmm. back to the 1980s. They yeah. knew that it could cause cancer. Yeah, and this is amazing. You go through, in your article on this over at Desmog blog, you go through the timeline that is now revealed by these documents. Uh, as you note, in 1961, uh, a DuPont toxicologist first informed the company that C8 uh, used in the production of Teflon was toxic. And then it wasn't until, uh, what is it, 1979. So now we're talking almost 20 years uh, after the original finding, according to the documents. Documents uh, that the company found out that monkeys exposed to high levels of C8 had died, and their own uh, C8 workers had abnormal liver functions in lab tests. But it then still took another two years uh, when they discovered a tie between C8 and birth defects that they finally started to remove pregnant women from C8 projects uh, at their plant. Uh, did they tell these women? Do we know yet if they told these women at the time why they were being removed from the from the project, or did they just quietly say, hey, uh, uh, Judy, we'd like you to work over here now instead? Uh, to be honest, I do not know. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't necessarily in those uh, documents. Um, so, again, that's another unknown, and, and could be something that we find out as more of these documents uh, come out. But given the company's history and mm-hmm. from what we've seen in these documents, it's likely that they did not tell them. I mean, I can't say for sure one mm-hmm. way or another, but when you look at this company's history of trying to cover up the dangers, it doesn't seem uh, within their character to inform <laughs> these people that they were in serious danger or that they could be you know, endangering uh, their unborn child. Because at that point, they only removed, this was back in 81, uh, they uh, removed the uh, the pregnant women. Uh, it wasn't until, 80. Uh, let's see, 1982. This would be then more than 20 years since they first found that it was uh, toxic before they finally recommended limiting all workers' exposure to C8. That's 20 years' worth of employees who were working on that stuff, presumably uh, unprotected. And then the whole time... Were they dumping that stuff into the Ohio River in, uh, I guess, in West Virginia, into the uh, drinking water of untold millions? Yeah, the almost the entire time that they'd been using this, which uh, the C8 chemical was first uh, developed and introduced in 1948. Uh-huh. So we still had, you oh. know, a good 13 years of exposure to this chemical before they even found out that it was toxic. I mean. We're looking at, at, at almost an industry cover-up, you know, from the 61 to, to 2014 when they finally stopped dumping. Um, I mean, th- that's almost as long as it took for the asbestos mm-hmm. documents when we see that they knew, you know, at the end of the 1800s 
that workers were developing illnesses from asbestos. I mean, we're, we're looking at the same kind of time frame here when you're talking about 50 years between acknowledgement and action. That is a huge time frame. I mean, that is, you know, two generations of Americans exposed to a poison without even knowing it. And, and one of the, the sickest parts of this story to me is the fact that DuPont was fined by the EPA yeah. in 2005. And then they allowed them to continue dumping for another nine years <laughs> after they were fined by, by Bush's EPA. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's sickening, because when we, when we talk about this, it's not just the company. The regulators themselves, of course, again, at the time being run by the Bush administration, they knew what was going on. They knew how toxic it was. They had their hands on these documents. They slap them on the wrist with a fine. They turn their back. DuPont continues to dump with no consequences. And so that's, that's why these cases right now are so important, because this is the only justice uh, that the victims will ever get, and it's the only time that DuPont is actually going to have to pay for their crimes. In, in 2005, uh, the EPA, I mean, one of the things, I know you write about this a lot over at uh, DeSmog blog, you know, you've got all of these Republicans claiming that the EPA is over-regulating, over-regulating. As a matter of fact, uh, one of Paul Ryan's uh, new things, his new agenda for the Republican Party seems to be uh, disallowing agencies like the EPA to make regulations at all without them first being approved, each and every one of them, by Congress. But here we have a case where the EPA is clearly under-regulating what's going on, and when they do regulate, as they did in 2005 by uh, uh, this slap on the wrist to DuPont, uh, it doesn't actually change the behavior. Did do, do we know, did the uh, EPA at that time in 2005, did they reveal uh, why they were fining the agency? And if so, why didn't everything come to a halt back in 2005 at that point? Um, they, they knew that DuPont was dumping this hazardous waste uh, hazardous waste, as they would call it, and concealing the dangers of it. They knew that DuPont was doing this, and that is why they fined them uh, the $16.5 million. And that's it. I mean, e- even by today's standards, I know that's only uh, 11 years ago, but mm-hmm. $16 million for a company like DuPont in 2005, that was nothing. Right. I mean, that was absolutely pennies. And, and as we know from you know uh, stories out today, I'm sure they only paid a fraction of that and wrote the rest off uh, as a tax write-off, as as they always do. But, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, Paul Ryan and all these other Republicans, their whole plan is to defund the government, Mm -hmm. and then when the EPA doesn't have the fangs to do their job because the Republicans have destroyed it, they then get to turn around and say, see, we told you government doesn't work. Right. Look how dysfunctional the, the EPA is. Right. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that they, they've manufactured themselves. And so, you know, I, I, I have great hopes with this new um, Toxic Substances Act. I have very high hopes for it. But keep in mind, C-8 was already regulated under the act uh, when it was originally signed in, the, in 1976. Ah. So it, it, it's a kind of scary uh, prospect that it could continue because uh, Sharon Lerner, writing over for The Intercept, has pointed out that the chemical they've replaced C8 with, known as C6, is just as toxic. (laughs) The studies studies that are coming out in in lab Mm -hmm. animals 
are showing that it is causing the exact same problems that C8 caused in humans. And when you say C8 was regulated in the uh, the initial uh, Toxic Substances Control Act, I guess we have to put regulated in quotes because right. it, it was listed there, but that doesn't mean it was actually tested. That doesn't mean they actually did anything about it. Uh, and the documents that have now come out, and I want to ask you about these documents, but I have to read a couple of, of these uh, quotes from the emails. These are the internal emails, I guess, uh, separate emails. Uh, uh, this is a DuPont environmental attorney talking about C8 back in 1999 in August. He said, quote, too bad the business wants to hunker down as though everything will not come out. God knows how they could be so clueless. This is a debacle at best. The business did not want to deal with this issue in the 1990s, and now it is in their face, and some are still are still clueless. Very poor leadership, the worst I have seen in the face of a serious issue since I have been with DuPont. That was one, uh, or there's two separate emails from 1999, and then again in 2000, DuPont's own legal in-house uh, counsel writes, uh, the expletive is about to hit the fan in West Virginia. The lawyer for the farmer finally realizes the uh, surfa surfactant. Is that how you say that? Uh, C8? Yes. Uh, the surfactant issue. He is threatening to go to the press to embarrass us, to pressure us to settle for big bucks. Expletive him. Finally, the plant recognizes it must get public first, something I've been urging for over a year. Better late than never. We're hoping plaintiff does not get there the next couple days. We need about a week. We boned ourselves again. Such is life in big. Uh, such is life in big, and I suspect little companies. Uh, Farron, sounds like y'all got these folks uh, dead to rights with these documents. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how they get around these. Where did these? Did this come about as a, a, a part of discovery in the case? Was it journalists who uncovered these documents? How, how did we get at these? Well, some of these documents had uh, been available for quite some time. Uh, Sharon Lerner, mm -hmm. uh, again, had, had her hands on some of these. Uh, the rest were from Discovery, and the judge had unsealed them, so they become public record. Um, uh, but it really tells you a lot. Uh, uh, Mike Papantonio loves to say this. You know, when you talk about these corporate defense attorneys, he always mentions that they really just have no soul. And for an attorney to be at a company and say, okay, look, we know there's a problem, we know there's a huge liability, and then the company refuses to act, and he says, oh, well, I mean, what kind of person just allows that to continue mm -hmm. and then just keeps drawing a paycheck? I mean, uh, look, hey, I, I, I would love to have a high-paying corporate lawyer job if I was a lawyer, <laughs> but I also still have a soul. Right. And I understand that I am not going to allow myself to get rich off of the poisoning of these people, and that is exactly what happened, because they knew what was happening. I mean, this guy could have, you know, gone to the government as a whistleblower right. and, 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 and taken care of this issue, or at least gone to the press with it as a whistleblower. Instead, they choose to continue raking in the big bucks, yep. and uh, that's, that's life for a corporate defense lawyer. Everybody is entitled to their right to counsel. I understand that. But you have to draw a line. You have to have some kind of moral 
code. Well, and, uh, you know, I got to point out, because this is something that I've come to learn over the years, uh, knowing you, Farron, and knowing Mike Papantonio, you know, when we hear about, uh, we hear about things like tort reform and, uh, you know, these attorneys like uh, like Mike Papantonio, who is uh, filing all of these frivolous law cases, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, the government is not going to take care of this. Obviously, the EPA uh, helped paper the entire thing over. Uh, where are people supposed to turn in cases like this where they are poisoned for life? And we're talking about potentially millions of people. I mean, above and beyond just the workers at, uh, at, at DuPont, the people who had it in their drinking water, the people who, as you say, the, the polar bears. I don't know if they're going to bring a suit, but uh, I mean... Where do people go if not to attorneys, uh, you know, to bring cases like this, to try to hurt the company? I mean, even even the company itself, when they get busted, as you said, it's the cost of doing business. So they you know, they have they have a settlement, a few million dollars. And that is that uh, it really relies on attorneys uh, like uh, like Pap and others to to hold these people accountable. There there is no other place for uh, for people to go. And there's no other way, it seems to send a message to these big corporations that they can't get away with this, even if they even if they are successfully do it for fifty years, eventually they're going to pay a price. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And ev- everybody hates lawyers until they need one. Mm. And this is one of those cases. I mean, I, I defy anybody to look at these documents and accuse all of the trial lawyers, because it's not just our firm, there are lots of firms mm-hmm. um, that, that have been doing this, but to accuse any of them uh, of being ambulance chasers or anything of that nature, I mean, these people, I mean, people have died, people are dying, people will die, all because DuPont didn't want to face the music back in the 60s. So they kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and all throughout this time, this 53 years that they were dumping this chemical into the river that's now detectable in the drinking water in 27 different states, they were making more money. Mm-hmm. So at this point, whatever, you know, these 3,500 lawsuits, if they have to pay one or two million dollars per lawsuit over the next 20 years, mm-hmm. that's not going to hurt them financially at all. They build it in, they write it off as a company loss, and they move on. They do nothing. They lose nothing. They they don't lose employees. Right. They don't have to downgrade or you know scale mm-hmm. back their operations. That company, even if they paid out all the money today, they're going to be just fine. Those people in West Virginia and Ohio and all over this country that have been poisoned, they're not. What what is uh, what has Dupont's uh, response been in these court cases? Uh, the the one we <clears throat> the initial one that you mentioned earlier, and the one that's ongoing now. What, what is their response to all of these allegations? Why do they say that they did not inform the public or even their own employees uh, for so many years? What What's funny is that you know obviously, well, there was a a class action uh, back in two thousand five about all this. Mm-hmm. And so DuPont is not allowed to argue that they uh, uh, didn't know that this was toxic. Mm -hmm. So their argument is, yeah, these people developed cancer, and yes, they were exposed to C8, but you can't prove that that particular cancer was caused by C8 and not just a random act of cancer. Mm. That is their argument of saying... Yeah, you were exposed to cancer-causing uh, uh, substances that we produced and we put out there and we knew it, but you still could have gotten kidney cancer even if you weren't there. Mm. I mean, 
they're in court arguing this. They've been arguing it for a yeah. month. And so it's, it's laughable because it's so ridiculous. I mean, if this company had any shred of moral fiber, they would have sat down with these attorneys and the clients and everyone involved and said, let's settle this, let's get it done. But instead, they're going to draw this out. And, the, you know, again, 3,500 uh, mm-hmm. cases, and they've only done three in the last 12 months. Yeah. And People th- will be long dead before they get any kind of uh, restitution from this company. Horrible. Just horrible. Uh, Varen Cousins, I really appreciate your coverage of this. Appreciate uh, Papantonia's uh, uh, helping out the victims here and uh, raising uh, noise about what's going on. Because I suspect, even with 3,500 cases, Lord knows how many others will develop, how many other people have been poisoned by this. Uh, So uh, keep raising hell and making noise. I I suspect I don't have to tell you that. You will continue to do it at uh, desmogblog.com. And, of course, on uh, on Ring of Fire, uh, people who want to get more information about this and or contact you and follow your work. Uh, Farron, actually, you have one of the best Twitter handles of all time. Uh, so let me let let me let you give it because it involves spelling. But go ahead. What, what's your Twitter handle, Farron? You can get me at Farron, F-A-R-R-O-N, balanced, <laughs> at Farron balanced <laughs> well done sir at Farron balanced on the twitters and of course at ring of fire radio.com uh thanks Farron. really appreciate it great talking to you and uh, hope to do it again soon my friend absolutely thank you very much brad you bet give our best to pap better things for better living through chemistry for the finer world we want Yes, it is. All right, a quick break, and we are back with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Well, they, they might have been melting over the past week down in Florida over the 4th of July weekend, but uh, Desi Doyen, they were not able to enjoy the beach to cool off. No, in they many, weren't, sadly. In, in many places, as you explain in our latest Green News Report. You should not breathe near it. Do not let pets or kids near it. Toxic algae bloom in Florida ruins 4th of July for tourism-based businesses. U.S. Senate moves fast to nix Vermont's GMO labeling law. Royalty reform for big coal on public lands. Oakland City Council bans coal export terminal. Plus, you know, welcome to Jupiter. 
Solar-powered NASA spacecraft reaches orbit around Jupiter. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Now, Bill says that the conversation with Attorney General Lynch was very innocent. It was just about grandkids and the weather and how neither will exist if Trump is elected. (laughs) Man, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we missed a day this week, so we probably missed a lot of green news. So I'll shut up and let you get on with it. (laughs) Well, first, as we go to air, the U.S. Senate is rushing legislation to create a national labeling standard for genetically modified ingredients, or GMOs, in food. That's good. This bill, however, preempts a new Vermont state law. It's widely supported by consumers that require small labels on products with GMO ingredients. But this new bipartisan Senate bill would cancel Vermont's law and all other state labeling standards to allow manufacturers instead to use a graphic QR code, which can only be read by smartphones. So it doesn't actually help the consumer know what's in it? That's right. Unless they have a smartphone. And bother to look it up. Oh, brother. In southern Florida, a massive toxic algae bloom along the coast ruined the crucial 4th of July weekend for tourism-based businesses and residents. Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency across four Florida counties because the thick mat of toxic algae is not only putrid, it is also dangerous. On visiting the toxic algae bloom, Florida Senator Marco Rubio apparently was hoping for easy answers. If there was one way to solve this, if we could prove that there was one measure or one industry or one group that is responsible for this, we would do it. I mean, nobody wants, this hurts everybody. Who benefits from this? Well, it turns out there are multiple causes, beginning with the destruction of part of the Everglades and its natural flood control services, converting it into industrial farms that send unregulated fertilizer and manure runoff into heavily polluted Lake Okeechobee. That feeds the algae bloom, but now climate change brings more frequent deluges. So the Army Corps of Engineers must release water from the lake so its levees don't break. That dumps the toxic algae along the coast, where it thrives in water heated by global warming. That is a lot of causes, a lot of causes that Marco Rubio clearly doesn't want to do anything about. Here's what he said to one of the local news outlets, and I love the way the reporter responded here. It can't just be driven by the politics of it. It has to be driven by the science of what's going to get us to a solution. I actually spoke with a scientist this week who is trying to do the exact research that Rubio was referring to earlier today. The only thing holding him back, he said is getting funding from the federal government. Oh, man, Rubio slam. Big coal reform. The Obama administration has closed a loophole in regulations that allowed coal companies to legally cheat the public out of royalties from coal mined on public lands. Royalties were based on a percentage of the price of the coal at the first sale. So the biggest coal companies got around that by selling the public's coal to their own subsidiaries first at below market rates with below market royalties. And then would sell it again later at a much higher price. Wow. Last week, the Interior Department put a stop to that practice, part of a major review of the federal coal leasing program. Wow, what a scam. How long were they getting away with that? Decades. Unbelievable. 
A new study in the European Union calculates that coal dust generated from coal-fired power plants kills 23,000 people a year in Europe because tiny particles of dust pollution can lodge deep in the lungs, causing heart disease and lung cancer. Coal dust pollution was the primary reason one San Francisco Bay Area city just said no to a developer's controversial proposal to build a new coal export shipping terminal to ship coal to China. The Oakland City Council voted unanimously last week to ban all storage and handling of coal in the city and the port of Oakland, citing high levels of coal dust pollution from coal trains. That effectively halts the project for now. Finally, NASA's Juno spacecraft, after a five-year journey from Earth, successfully entered orbit around Jupiter on July 4th. It also broke a distance record. It's the first spacecraft ever to travel so far out into the outer solar system, powered only by solar energy. Juno has a massive array of advanced solar panels and super energy-efficient instruments for its two-year orbital mission around Jupiter. So a solar craft has made it all the way to Jupiter? Yep. And you're impressed with that solar impulse to airplane? It's barely made it around the world. It's all pretty cool to me. For much more on all of these cool stories, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Suns it calls me on and on across the Thank you very much, Desi Joyan. By the way, it, it was we didn't have time in uh, this Green News report, but it wasn't only Florida that, it, that had their Fourth of July weekend ruined as far as going to the beach. Yeah, it was your really, beloved Texas. Uh, sadly, yes, Galveston, Texas has a uh, flesh-eating bacteria problem that thrives in warm salt water. Oh man, sadly. So, uh, other than that, in Florida and Texas, where all of the climate change deniers live, I wonder if they'll. Start start to notice that, uh, hey, this is actually costing us money. This is a problem. It's costing our health. Perhaps they'll listen now. No, they won't. They're from Texas and Florida. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Also, my thanks to Farron Cousins of ringoffire.com, my guest today. And to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do Whatever the hell it is we do here on your public airwaves. Greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it as ever for free at bradblog.com along with all of our other years and years of shows. You can also stop by iTunes and uh, subscribe over there for free to receive the broadcast every day. Uh, and we hope you'll give us a good review over there if you do to help make it a little easier for everyone else in the world to find us as well. You can leave us comments at bradblog.com or on the Twitters and Facebooks at the Brad Blog, or send me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Angie Coiro is in for us on our next thrilling episode, but we will see you soon and shortly thereafter. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.